Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. If you opened up your podcast player this morning and we're all like, whoa, Amicus looks different. I'm going to admit we have had a little bit of work done. We wanted to be end of term ready with our new look. And I don't know. We think you'll agree. It's taken years off us. And that new look is part of a very busy time here on the show and at the magazine. You are finding yourself at the start of what we're going to call Opinion Palooza, the last frantic weeks of the 2022 term at the high court. And the plan is to get almost 30 opinions out in cases that will reshape the landscape on voting rights, affirmative action, tribal sovereignty, LGBTQ anti-discrimination laws, and more for years to come. Amicus is going to be coming to you weekly through June, and we will also be bringing you extra episodes in the immediate aftermath of the biggest decisions as part of our commitment to trying to cover the court differently this year. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to Mark Joseph Stern about the justices' varying and complicated commitments to explaining their recusals in cases where they have conflicts. And we're going to talk about a union case that came down not as badly as we thought against labor. Even later on in the show, we're going to tackle court reform and the desperate need to modernize the judiciary with Representative Hank Johnson, congressman from Georgia. We taped that conversation as part of our live full court press show in Washington, D.C. at Sixth and I last week. That conversation will be available to our Slate Plus members. Slate Plus members support all the work we are doing here at Slate. You're such an important reason that we can offer this level of court coverage. So thank you, as always, for your support. But first, we realized that one of our goals in better covering the Supreme Court was not being met on this very podcast. Here we've been inveighing against treating cases that arrive at the doorstep of the high court as if they are somehow perfectly ripe, fully formed offerings that have to be resolved in a timely fashion. And yet one area that we just haven't paid nearly enough attention to this year has been the war on transgender rights. By my lights, this is the single most important story when it comes to the story of astroturf groups that are putting out cut-and-paste bills that are used to terrorize and immiserate trans Americans. Forty-five states have proposed anti-trans bills in 2023 alone. And that legislation, it truly runs the cruelty gamut with laws that restrict gender-affirming and medically necessary care, laws that close public restrooms to trans access, laws that restrict the First Amendment in terms of drag performances, and laws that make it impossible for school kids to learn about, discuss, or even express their own gender identity without state harassment and even surveillance. I just don't know how to articulate this in terms that begin to meet the moment with respect to how quickly all this happened and how violently it has interfered with supposedly vaunted conservative rights, ranging from family and educational autonomy to healthcare and to privacy and free expression. But I do know that these cases are being litigated and they are going to come to the Supreme Court full of false facts and full of big money. Our guest today is better positioned to help us understand the ways in which this is a campaign orchestrated by the same funders, litigated by the very same groups, 
and rolled out in a concerted effort to make incendiary false claims mainstream and to create false legal equivalencies. Chase Strangio is Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project and a nationally recognized expert on trans rights. He's also a visionary lawyer, organizer, and trans rights activist. And for our purposes, he's an indispensable guide to what is happening and why none of us should be even the tiniest bit surprised when one of these legal efforts shows up at the Supreme Court tied up in a tiny little bow ready for sober reflection by the justices. This isn't a case. It's not a series of lawsuits so much as it is a ticking time bomb that will wreak havoc on families and children attempting to live their lives with dignity and equality. Chase, I hope that wasn't too overheated an introduction or too much of a content over promise, but we have been wanting to talk to you for a long time. So welcome to Amicus. Oh, thank you so much. And I feel like that was perfect. It perfectly <laughs> set the stage in tone and in scope. And it is truly a catastrophic moment. And I will say, as someone who is deeply cynical and pessimistic, even I and 2023 have been so terribly shocked at how fast things have gone downhill and how unbelievably devastating the material consequences have been in just such a short period of time. So that's actually the place I think I want to start, because I think that in a world where the news is just a barrage, it's easy to miss the speed and the velocity, that this is an issue that seemed to kind of be moseying along in a sluggish but maybe general direction of progress and acceptance, even what, six, seven years ago, is now the source of more lawsuits, more bills, more genuinely misleading campaign rhetoric and ads than any other issue in the country. And and I would love for you to just center for one minute why this mass of anti-trans hysteria has become the locus of so much energy. What does this signify in terms of a cultural moment when there are so many other salient, I would say, existential issues and campaigns? What is it about this issue that just rocket-fueled it into state legislatures? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of impossible to distill into a a single thing, but it's like these multiple compounding structural forces at play into this perfect storm of 2023. And so part of it, of course, is just the consequences of Shelby County versus Holder and the striking down of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And then what happens between 2013 and 2023 with state legislatures shifting so dramatically far to the right. And you see the consequences of that build over time, leading first you know, perhaps most consequentially to the 2016 presidential election. But then also, I think, with the left failing to really center what was going on in state legislatures that allowed this really catastrophic rightward shift, that then when you place that on top of a backlash to Obergefell v. Hodges, to Bostock, you have then the entirety of the right's focus on attacking same-sex marriage, attacking same-sex couples, shift very swiftly to trans bodies, to trans people beginning in 2016 and then slowly escalating over the course of the Trump administration up to 2020. So you have the rightward shift in the legislatures, the backlash to equality for same-sex couples insists 
uh, you know, LGB people being focused on, on trans people. And then I think there's these two other fundamental factors. One is Dobbs and the way in which the post-Dobb reality and the less political efficacy of anti-abortion rhetoric in state legislatures and at the ballot then became this crisis point for the right. They needed a new issue to focus on rapidly in the lead up to the 2024 presidential election. And trans people were well positioned in the crosshairs because over the past few years, the rhetoric has been slowly escalating and state legislation has been slowly expanding from, you know, bathrooms to sports to healthcare, And then, of course, to the many ways we're seeing classroom censorship and uh, public scrutiny and criminalization. And so that was sort of a shift in the post-Dobbs moment that I don't know that we totally and completely anticipated what was going to happen in the state legislative sessions in the wake of Dobbs and then some of the ballot successes on the sort of pro-abortion side when people were showing up to the polls. And that is clear that the right is situating trans people as their winning issue for 2024. And then I think we have to also take into account that anytime you see globally, rightward shifts in governmental structures, there is almost always an emphasis on controlling the family and the body and self-determination. And globally, we're seeing this with attacks on trans people in far-right governments, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil, whether it's governments in Eastern Europe, there is a fixation on transness and this idea that the rejection of the sex binary is some sort of fundamental threat to fascism, really, to governmental control over its citizenry. And so you can start to see that as part of these rightward shifts in government across the world, really being at the center as well. So it's all of those factors all at once. And that's what we're seeing in 2023. And then we can talk about, well, what does that look like and what does it mean? So actually, that is exactly the thing I wanted you to do, which is just draw the map for me. We are counting, you know, hundreds of bills proposed in the states. Some have been signed into law. You know, right before we started talking, you were describing, you know, you're doing depositions and you're lobbying and you're giving testimony. I mean, you are running around from courts to legislatures. And then there's other ideas that are just being dreamed into existence. And I have this sense of you, Chase, as, you know, in this elaborate game of whack-a-mole where this is happening on, like, a whole bunch of different fronts and yet – it's all coming from some of the same places. And so I was wondering if you could tell us where like baby anti-trans legislation is born, where it comes from, what forms it takes, and the ways in which this is in many ways reminiscent of the sort of cut and paste legislation and the cut and paste lawsuits that we're seeing in the reproductive rights context, in so many other contexts. This is not a grass roots effort that is happening on the ground in Tennessee. Yeah, no, it is is absolutely not a grassroots effort. And you can trace it systematically among well-funded global organizations that come together and identify ways to draft model legislation, send it out to legislatures, and then position litigation in the court. It's very clear there is a group that came together, including at least Heritage Foundation, Alliance Defending Freedom. You know, Stephen Miller is newly in the mix with his America First Legal. Coming together first in 2019, 
2019, not first, of course, this is decades in the making, but in terms of what we're seeing in the most contemporary moment in 2023 legislation, coming up with this so-called promise to America's children. And it's an entity that was drafting model legislation for states across the country, shipping it out to lawmakers, focused on positing trans people as a threat to children. And of course, this is what we see all the time a threat to white women and white children being positioned as the driving force behind these regressive pieces of legislation. First, it was very focused on bathrooms and sports. And there was legislation that was drafted by these organizations and sent out to legislatures across the country. That began to shift as the public discourse began to shift, as the success around sports began to take off. So the way in which the right was able to draw in the center left under this idea that trans people and trans women and girls in particular were a threat to women and girls in sports, which is, of course, ridiculous that anyone was able to fall victim to this completely opportunistic and untrue set of political pieces of rhetoric. But yet they were. We had so many people who were in essence saying, well, isn't it isn't it true that trans people have this un, quote unquote unfair advantage in sports? And, and what that did was allow for that sort of rhetorical anxiety to fuel this legislation in states. And so we went from one state in 2020 passing an anti-trans sports bill to almost half the country passing anti-trans sports bills by the beginning of 2022. That was the opening. It was never about sports, which we were saying over and over again. This was about the erosion of bodily autonomy and allowing for an entry point into criminalization and uh, and sort of just existential assault on trans existence, which of course it was. And that led the way to the model pieces of legislation around trans healthcare, which again, were about positioning this idea that children were being threatened by this quote unquote experimental medicine that was being pushed into people's minds through social media in this rhetoric of contagion and that nobody has autonomy, nobody has agency, and parents and doctors are part of some grand conspiracy to make everyone trans. That is the story that is being told. And now they were so effective. They used right-wing media. They used model legislation. And unfortunately, they used quite effectively, the center-left media as well to create this sense that there was some percolating crisis that the state needed to intervene in. And I think this is really important to understand that as a community, we went from in 2020, it was absolutely unimaginable that a state could categorically ban healthcare that was accepted by every major medical association that people relied on for periods of time as long as, you know, if we're talking about minors, sometimes eight years. If we're talking about adults, obviously for a lifetime. We went from that being unimaginable in 2020. No state even passed a single piece of legislation through one legislative chamber. To in 2023, we have 21 states that have banned care. And most of those have banned it in 2023. So in a period of three months, the landscape of care has been so catastrophically eroded. And unlike in the context of abortion, where there has been the 50-year erosion, and there have been, for better or for worse, some networks put in place to help people move to access care, some funds that have been set up, we have nothing. Because it was in a matter of three months where everything disappeared, the demand, of course, is going to increase in the states that still have care, um, but the supply has gone down nationally. And, and so we're in a, in a crisis point. By July 1st, we're going to have states immediately cutting off this medical care because of this false narrative and these model pieces of legislation that were systematically shipped out across the country. So I want to 
test this theory on you. If I could reframe the arc you just described, which happened, as you said, in, you know, under five years, it starts with this, you know, I know the bathroom bans come immediately on the heels of Obergefell and North Carolina and HB2, but the initial fear-mongering is almost the affirmative action argument, right? That like these trans athletes are coming to take your kid's spot, right? Yep. It's unfair. It's that zero-sum, you know, how are we supposed to compete if these trans athletes are on the field? And then it morphs really quickly into what you're describing as this contagion theory, right? This is the bathrooms. This is the grooming. This is, you know, teachers can't say things or do things. And then in a heartbeat again, it morphs into a deep mistrust of medicine and the medical community and decades of, you know, medical findings. And that arc happens so fast that we track no piece of it. Like we did. I mean, you did. You (laughs) tracked it. But the idea that we went from, you know, a conversation about grooming and contagion to a conversation in which legacy medical organizations, physicians who've been providing care forever are all mistrusted, that last beat chase feels like it almost required COVID. It almost required a huge international mistrust of medicine and doctors. And it's the same conversation, by the way, in the abortion context that suggests that any tale of a woman being left to bleed out is because doctors are in on the lie, right? Doctors want their patients to suffer so that they can get the outcomes they want. And I just wonder if part of what you're saying is that this profound mistrust of both parents and doctors, and maybe tangentially teachers, is all a little bit an outgrowth of what happened in COVID. I think that's right. It necessitates COVID, and we also can't be ahistorical about it. And it's Anita Bryant all over again. It's the criminalization of cross-dressing all over. It's an overlay of so many things. And, And I think there's multiple things that come out of COVID. There's the mistrust of medicine. There's this mistrust of what's happening in schools and this sense of I can control what my child is exposed to increasingly. The irony, of course, and the hypocrisy, which is endemic to the right in general, is Well, another outgrowth of COVID is the incredibly exaggerated parental rights discourse. And in the context of this conversation about healthcare, it is an unbelievable erosion into the rights of parents because you can't get this medical care without parental consent. What's happening in these contexts is the the state is coming in and overriding the consent and the best judgment of parents. And I don't want to lean too far into the parental rights argument because there are many other contexts in which that does not serve us. And there are many trans people who are living in an environment where their parents are acting in egregiously violent ways. And so we don't want to overly defer to parents. But I think in this moment, in the post-COVID moment, and the conversations around masks and vaccines and what is being taught in schools, the notion that parents have this incredibly strong right to control what their kids have access to, what their kids learn. And at the same time, the state is coming in and saying, but we're going to criminalize you parents if you set up an affirming home for your children. The mistrust of science I think is in some part an outgrowth uh, of COVID. And then, of course, is one of the many ways where this is just building on the anti-abortion conversation. And if we look at some of the main doctrinal arguments raised by the state, you know, going back to, to these cases in 2021, which was the first time that we litigated one of these statutory.
statutory bans on healthcare for trans adolescents, they were relying on language from Gonzalez v. Carhartt and it's in essence saying where there's quote unquote medical uncertainty, the state has this authority to come in and regulate and an expanded authority to regulate. Now, my perspective has always been that these were, you know, we were raising equal protection claims. They were citing substantive due process cases. But the idea of creating this sense of debate or uncertainty where there was none from a medical perspective is directly from the context of the anti-abortion movement and the framework. And in fact, every piece of both legal argument and public rhetoric derives directly from the anti-abortion movement. Patient regret, medical uncertainty, you know, this sense that people are being unduly influenced by the internet or bad nonprofit actors, a powerful lobby of activists who are controlling and transforming medicine. All of that comes from from that conversation that has obviously existed for the last 50 years. We're going to take a quick break. Let's return now to my conversation with the ACLU's Chase Strangio about attacks on trans rights in America. You're talking about what was once, you know, civil penalties becoming criminalization, overt criminalization, becoming something that I kind of put in the bucket chase of vigilantism and, you know, surveillance, right, that that we're going to turn parents in and take away custody. That also happened so quickly that I think probably there are listeners who don't understand that we are now talking about, you know, felony <laughs> convictions. Like, this is not a joke. And this is also weaponizing that SB8, you know, aiding and abetting language that says that everybody who objects has skin in the game now because anybody can become a warrior and anybody can determine when a child is unsafe, including within what was once that, you know, family autonomy bubble protected under substantive due process. So I just wonder if you can again track for us because that was so compressed that move, that we are not just talking anymore about, you know, disapproval or moral panic. We are talking about putting people in jail. Yes. I mean, I think the deputizing of the general public to surveil and criminalize their neighbors. And and actually, pre-SBA, we had a lot of the early anti-trans bathroom bills from 2016 to 2019 had these sort of provisions, these private right of action that an individual could, uh, you know, sort of claim harm by proximity to a trans person. And that created this broad web of sort of surveillance and control over people's bodies in which you're saying to the other students at school, look out who's in the bathroom and to the other parents saying, oh, you better watch out who your child is proximate to. I think that really is one of the precursors to the SB8 model. And then, of course, you have Texas being the breeding ground for this, both in the context of the abortion SB8 framework. And then, of course, Governor Abbott and Ken Paxton's so-called child abuse directive, which in essence says that any parent who is providing affirming care to their child uh, is subject to investigation by the state. So called child welfare system. And not only that, any person in public who does not report that potential, not just the knowledge of it, but the potential of it is themselves potentially criminally liable. So everyone is swept in. And now we have in 2023, in the context of criminal abortion bans, as well as criminal bans on gender affirming health care, this 
very broad aiding and abetting framework that has no real limits that, you know, is is a parent aiding and abetting if they take their child out of state? Is a parent aiding and abetting if they look on the internet for information about how to support their child? We know that people are being criminalized for taking people out of state to get access to abortion. We know that parents are feeling under threat for trying to figure out how to take their child who needs to have a continuity of care for periods of years out of state and no real understanding of how these laws are going to be enforced. Trying to understand the history of like dormant commerce clause protections and, you know, the ways in which there's like the extraterritoriality question of how much can criminal liability extend beyond the borders of a state. And we really don't know, which of course, there's that general risk, but the chilling effect is so profound because you have all these groups of people for whom, yes, they're the ones who are already receiving care, but the message to parents who may just not understand what's going on with their child is you will become criminal if you even contemplate this path for your child. You know, forget the fact that every major medical association that we tell you to rely on for all other purposes is telling you this is important. Now the state is telling you no. And in fact, even just thinking about it, could cause this you know, sort of massive criminal liability. And and I think this is going back to, to sort of your opening framework. It's not just in the criminalization of the healthcare. It's like, are you taking your child to a drag queen story hour? Are you trying to find those affirming spaces in the world, whether or not you're going to find them a doctor? Those are then being criminalized not just by the state, but then there's the vigilante violence coming in that has this multiple sites of chilling because of the extra legal attacks and then on top of, of course, all of these legal attacks. Can we pull on that for one one more beat? Because it's not just, uh, you're describing a chilling effect nationwide, but it's not just chilling, you know, parental conduct or healthcare. It's also chilling litigation itself. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been so striking comparing, say, 2021 to 2023 is it's, of course, so difficult to find plaintiffs because first, families are are fleeing. So they're just like, no, I can't live here safely. Two, even if they're not, they're terrified by the idea of the state even knowing who they are, thinking, where are we going? Are we going to a point of people keeping databases of this information, which we're already seeing in under DeSantis and Abbott in uh, Florida and Texas? So you have the parents and families fearful. They certainly don't want to move forward under their names. So we're moving forward under pseudonyms. So that also limits the ability to tell stories. So there's like, even if we can find people, it limits our ability to tell stories. And then providers are not able to move forward either for fear, not just of of retribution, but of bomb threats, of physical violence. We have Boston Children's Hospital has had multiple bomb threats. And when we reach out to them to even serve as experts, they don't feel like they can put themselves out there, which means litigation itself, we have to have security at the courthouse. We have to, you know, work with the possibilities of threats to our potential plaintiffs. So that means how do you move forward in litigation when you have to be very candid, of course, to tell people that these are real risks and people already, of course, know that. So can you talk a little bit about your litigation life right now? Can you tell us where there are big lawsuits? What claims are being made? What? Tell us about wins. <laughs> tell us about losses. No. And maybe with I'm, I'm pointing toward, you know, the courts are not this is newsflash, Chase. Courts are not great right now. No, in some I context. did hear this. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I'm just wondering, you know, uh, put aside your work lobbying and testifying, but tell me what the litigation plan is when, you know, as you're saying, it's coming fast and furious and also the confusion and the panic is very much the point. Yeah, I mean, this is the most, you know, I have to say, I've been at the ACLU for 10 and a half years. I have been in lots of different moments of these types of fights, you know, the post-Windsor pre-Obergefell, where you're suing all over around marriage equality, you know, the early bathroom bans, you know, we've been in a lot of moments in the last 10 and a half years, and I've been doing this work for the last 20 years, and I just have simply never seen a moment like this. And and, and it does resemble, I think, in many ways, what my colleagues in the reproductive Productive rights space had been dealing with for a long time with all of the with all of the trap laws and laws moving into effect under emergency provisions. So you're talking about a period of 48 hours where a landscape of medical care can change overnight, and so you have to run into court very quickly. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be successful, but it does mean you have to at least try. Or I feel that way very strongly. So at the ACLU, you know, we had our pre 2023 docket, which you know had all types of cases, and the one case that I had that was, uh, you know, over a gender-affirming healthcare ban for minors was Arkansas had passed a ban in 2021. We filed a lawsuit, got a preliminary injunction. The state actually never moved to stay that injunction. I think at the time, they were so busy trying to stop mask mandates and <laughs> and other vaccine mandates, so they, they, were, they didn't do it. So we actually have had our PI in place in Arkansas for the last two years. We even got the PI affirmed at the Eighth Circuit small miracles, um, you know, and then on Bonk was denied. It was only denied because we were already in trial by the time the petition for rehearing went up, which is part of our strategy, especially in hostile circuits, was to move concurrently to trial while we were litigating the appeal of the PI because we knew, or at least in theory at a time when fact-finding was something that appellate courts deferred to, I think big question about whether that's true still, but, you know, we wanted to get a, a record in place. We wanted to go up on appeal on a record at the same time that we were dealing with the PI appeals. So we had a trial in Arkansas over their gender-affirming care ban. It was the first full trial. We had a two-week trial last fall. We are still waiting for a decision um, in that case. On the one hand, we would love a great decision that has really explicit facts laid out that you know we could cite in other cases. On the other hand, Right now, there's an injunction in place. So that's a good position for people in Arkansas. So, you know, it's sort of trying to navigate that. Do you want to move cases forward or do you want to sort of stay in the posture where you can preliminarily block these laws, knowing how precarious things are when you go up into the appellate courts in this country? Um, so that's the case from pre-2023. I personally at the ACLU have filed three new healthcare ban cases in the last three months because we've had so many of these laws pass, along with my colleagues, of course. So ju just thinking like what it means for each of us as individual lawyers, I have three new cases that are moving forward with discovery, I will say, towards a preliminary injunction hearing, trying to block laws, at least two of them that are set to go into effect July 1st. That's Tennessee and Indiana. We also have a case in Oklahoma that I'm working on. That's just my docket. We also have cases that we filed in Montana in state court, in Idaho uh, this past week. 
In federal court, we have multiple state court cases in Texas that are dealing with the continuation of the Governor Abbott directive to try to allow for investigations into families. And then, of course, there's all sorts of other legislation that has passed that we're teeing up lawsuits for. Our affiliates have filed lawsuits in Utah and Kentucky. We also are trying to figure out what to do about the fact that Florida has so many anti-trans laws that have passed, including, I will say, a criminal ban on trans adults using the restroom. That is an absolute catastrophe that we have to deal with on top of all of the healthcare litigation. Largely, our claims are equal protection and substantive due process claims. Our primary claim is that this violates the equal protection rights of transgender adolescents as a form of sex discrimination and and trans status discrimination. The other side is trying to use Dobbs, even in our equal protection arguments, but very much leading with Dobbs to say, you know, that the state has broad authority to regulate in the area of healthcare anytime that there's any so-called disagreement or uncertainty about the medical implications of a set of procedures. Dobbs gives the state authority to regulate, you know, putting aside the fact that like that was the substantive due process claim. We're raising equal protection claims. Dobbs figures incredibly saliently, as does, I will say, all of the pregnancy and abortion cases that in essence said that this is not sex discrimination. Pregnancy discrimination isn't sex discrimination. They're using those cases to say these are not trans status discrimination cases that, you know, targeting gender transition isn't the same as targeting trans people because the two groups are not coextensive. So those are the the sort of cases, the theories. And then we also, we have a parental rights theory. So we're saying, you know, this overrides the rights of parents to control the care and custody of their children. One of the longest standing fundamental rights in our country. And in some cases, we have First Amendment claims on behalf of providers who um, are in some cases criminalized and, um, but in many cases banned from referring patients. So there are referral bans in addition to the substantive bans on the care itself. Okay, I've never been more exhausted in my life uh, <laughs> listening to you, but I do want to um, end this conversation with two notes. One is, you know, I would be remiss if I don't note this is our first show in June, which is Pride Month. We're watching the court for the results in 303 Creative. It's not a ban, but it certainly, I think, weaponizes this vigilante spirit you talked about earlier, you know, the right of every person to be a law of civil rights unto themselves. And I wonder if uh, my sense is that folks listening, Chase, want to be told what they can do and want to be told how to help and that it's not good enough to say not to worry. The ACLU is at it. Um I know that the answer is a sort of complicated blend of state and local government and getting involved in school boards and understanding all the ways in which you started with this. We were a little bit asleep at the switch while massive, massive post-Shelby County changes were happening. But for listeners who genuinely listen to what you're saying in horror and don't know what the thing is that they should be doing right now, What is the thing that we can all be doing better in terms of, I think, really sweeping back this sea of laws that almost say fomenting mistrust is the point because you should take the law into your own hands? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I sort of 
really right now I'm feeling that the micro is the answer. That part of what we need is to transform our reaction to the information that we're hearing. And I will say something I said um, this past weekend at an event, I was doing that. You know, we've had, and so this is a bright spot, we've been able to block these laws so far. And I think that it remains to be seen what happens as this sort of landscape shifts so dramatically and the judges are looking out on 20 states, not two. Um, but we've been able to go into court, present evidence and about the healthcare in particular, and conservative judges are ruling with us. And I will say that we've had more hospitable forums in conservative federal courts, conservative state courts, then sometimes I feel in New York City conversations with liberals. And so I think people really need to take a beat and think about, are they becoming susceptible to this misinformation about trans people in particular? Because that matters for trans people, but it also matters for you because they're using us as an entry point into the erosion of everyone's rights. That is a fact. That's going to be very much true in 2024. So if you let them attack us, the, the outcome in 2024 means a changed federal landscape. And there's a federal abortion ban. There's a federal ban on gender affirming healthcare for everyone. You're not safe in New York. You're not safe in California. So we better get it together now, which means don't buy it. Use your common sense to say, I understand how medical care works in this country. How is it that it would be so hard to get an appointment for any other form of medical care, but somehow access to gender transition care for minors is happening in this way that's counterfactual to what we know to be true about medicine in this country? Or how can you accept the idea that there's some social pressure to be trans when we know that from birth, there is such an unbelievable, overwhelming imperative to be cisgender and heterosexual. In Pride Month, we should recognize that there remains so many forms of stigma and discrimination against just being queer in this country, even as we've made unbelievable progress. And so I really want people to pause before they have their reflexive reaction, that we have deeply ingrained notions of gender binary and sexuality, and that we all have work to do to undo that. And that as individuals interfacing with our families, our communities, our schools, our towns, our states, that all of these interactions are the things that are fueling the legislation. That if we are creating the cultural context in which it feels legitimate to completely attack a group of people, then it will continue to happen, which means it starts with how we engage with each other and how we respond to this information. So no, people aren't being pushed to be trans on the internet. What's actually happening is people thankfully maybe having the ability to come to terms with who they are and looking for people like them out there, like we all do. And no, there's not a vast conspiracy among doctors to facilitate access to this treatment. That's ridiculous. There is unbelievable in access to this treatment. So use what you know to be true and just hold some complexity and nuance. And I believe that's our path forward. That is our movement. That is our resistance because we're not going to win in the courts if we don't change these fundamental cultural realities that we're living under. I love what you're saying, Chase, because in the end, it's not just the information that's being weaponized. It's that we're being weaponized with misinformation, and we don't even know it's happening. And that's just how subject we are to, you know, as you say, sort of tropes that are spun out so quickly, that we don't have time to check them, you know, that that they were unthinkable years ago, and now they are just everywhere. And that the idea that we are part of the problem, because we're not thinking is yep. just actually an immensely helpful way to move forward. Uh, 
Chase Strangio is Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV Project, a nationally recognized expert on trans rights and quite possibly the very busiest person in America in the summer of 2023. Thank you, Chase, for being with us. I cannot, I really cannot convey how much all of this information transmitted at high speeds and high volumes is going to help a lot of people think this through. Thank you for having me. And now a little bit of housekeeping. If you do not know by now, Amicus is going to be coming to you weekly through June, and we're not stopping there. We're going to be bringing listeners emergency episodes of Amicus to respond to the court's big decisions just as soon as Mark Stern and I can make sense of them. Because of the imperative nature of this work and the embarrassment of riches in our reporting, we're going to make these previously plus only shows available to all listeners. You can support us regardless by subscribing to Slate and helping us define a new type of court coverage at slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you. And now we turn to the part of the show usually reserved for our amazing Slate Plus members only, but Mark Stern and I refuse to recuse ourselves from bringing our Supreme Court conversations to as many listeners as possible. And so as part of this term's opinion palooza, we want to welcome all of our listeners. So here we are at the... uh, gossip and um, snarking portion of the show with uh, (laughs) Mark Joseph Stern, who has got a PhD in both gossip and snarking. Hi, Mark. Hi. Wasn't it fun to do gossip and snarking in front of a live audience? That was quite magnificent. I want to actually ask you about that before we start, which is, you know, we're a week out from our live show at Sixth and I from rolling out the package about covering the end of term differently from, you know, being in conversation with really a lot of extremely smart people about how to do this better. And I, I wondered if anything that we have talked about or learned in the last couple of weeks, thinking about going into the last month of the term has fundamentally changed the way you're doing this reshape the way you're thinking about this. I'm worried as I ask this question that we are barreling into an end of term that is going to rise and fall only on the affirmative action decisions. Well, you know, I think that we, you and me and the great crew of Slate writers will not only focus on affirmative action as there are so many other extremely important and potentially devastating cases. I think our friends who are kind of in this journey with us, like Ellie Mistal and Jay Willis and other greats like Chris Geidner, will also be covering this end of term in a fair and thoughtful and incisive way. I will say that like from our conversation at Sixth and I, from previous talks, I feel freshly inspired to really tackle these cases as the manufactured stories that they are. I feel really eager to penetrate the narratives that the lawyers have 
uh, crafted to make these cases appealing to the justices. And typically we're talking about conservative lawyers trying to appeal to conservative justices and to dig into the backstory and not just the backstory of one particular case, but the whole history of how these cases landed on the Supreme Court's docket. And Jay Willis did an, an incredible job with this at the event, talking about Ed Bloom, who was just like a investment banker who decided he wanted to abolish affirmative action and is now on the brink of success. And that should be like foregrounded in every opinion piece about that case. So I, I think that we're going to keep doing what we're doing you and I have been having these conversations for years, but this is maybe a kind of breakthrough moment, not just because of us, like the public is much more invigorated. There are more Supreme Court reporters now than ever. A lot of people are following this who previously kind of tuned out until maybe the last day of the term. And we're all going to try to work together to puncture the usual approach of these are fun little brain puzzles. And these demigods in robes are just doing their God's honest best work to suss out the right answer. And we're going to talk about how this is a fundamentally political process that, you know, represents millions of dollars in each case spent to try to nab at least five votes to affect an, a fundamental overhaul of, of policy in this country. And that this is not just about law. This is not just about, oh, who had the more interesting argument or the flashier prose. These are sometimes life or death questions that deserve to be treated with the seriousness and the skepticism that we in the media have always treated Congress and the political branches. So I'm feeling ready for that. It's not always going to be a fun task, like it's kind of depressing. But I think, you know, <laughs> you and I and our friends <laughs> will be able to get through it. Kind of depressing. That's very on brand. I want to, before we talk about cases, I do want to talk about a piece you wrote this week about the Supreme Court justices' complicated new relationship to disclosure <laughs> uh, when they recuse from cases. As you point out, this was, I thought, a promise that was held out about trying to do better. Some of the justices are trying to do better. Others? Meh. <laughs> uh, Dahlia, are you still on Twitter or have you fled yet? Have you been, have you just run I'm away on, with your I'm hair on, on fire? I'm, I'm on it entirely transactionally, which is to say I try to add no value whatsoever <laughs> to amplify people like you and Ian and Chris Geidner and Leah Lippman and Steve Vladek. So I am there only, only to provide no benefit to our boy Elon and benefit to people who might choose to follow me on Twitter. I don't know if that's a principled stance, but that's my current stance. I think so. You know, those emerald mines don't run themselves. Uh, I love all those people you just mentioned. I also follow them and stay there for them. But I just want to apologize that you are still on Twitter because I was reminded after writing this piece what a profoundly miserable and unpleasant place it is to be. Because the way that I framed this piece was that, you know, the Supreme Court and specifically Chief Justice John Roberts came out in April with these new guidelines, pointers, principles, rules saying to the Senate Judiciary Committee, hey, I'm not going to testify because I don't like you and I don't have to, but I'm going to show you the ethics principles that we at the court all adhere to and follow. And he described them as foundational 
ethics, principles, and practices. And it seemed to me that if you're going to describe something as foundational and you're going to have all nine justices sign on and affirm that they subscribe to these foundational practices, that it would be fair to call them rules, to say that what the chief did was essentially say, you don't need to impose rules on us because these are the rules that we follow. And thus, my piece said that just barely a month after sending these rules over to Congress and saying, this is the new guidebook, that Sam Alito just ignored them and basically decided he was going to violate them willy-nilly. And that's because one of the fundamental new principles here is that the justices were going to explain their recusals. The justices were going to say, I recuse from this case, and then cite the reason why. And one of the examples was prior government service, and another one of the examples was financial interest. And very recently, Justice Kagan came out of the gate debuting this by recusing from a case that she had some involvement with when she was Solicitor General way back in the day and said, basically, I recuse because of my prior government service. And we all said, yay, thank you for doing the bare minimum. You guys rule. And then Alito followed up this week by recusing from a case and not explaining why, forcing people like me to go into his most recent financial disclosures and do a lot of control effing until we found that he owns individual stock in one of the companies that's a party to this case. And this is a very sleazy energy company that is trying to shirk its duty to help to fund the restoration and expansion of a waterway that it uses to ship its goods. So sleazy that the Fifth Circuit ruled against it. Jennifer Walker Elrod ruled against it. If you know who she is, then you'll understand why that's a big deal. So I wrote this piece saying, hey, they have these new rules and Alito just just broke them. And so I guess, you know, they're not really rules. And I guess that the chief justice can't corral even Sam Alito to follow them. And this is just more proof that if Congress isn't going to do it, it's not going to happen. And I got blasted on Twitter, just absolutely blasted for putting it that way. And I was scolded to the moon and told, how dare you? These were nothing more than meaningless voluntary suggestions. And to (laughs) ding Alito for breaking a rule is to fundamentally tarnish his honor by vastly exaggerating, if not lying about his conduct, because he did nothing wrong, nothing wrong. He simply ignored guidelines that were meant to be ignored. Right. So let's just be clear. These are meaningless advisory, I think is the the chief justice's words. We consult these meaningless rules, and yet this is what we rely on when we tell you the public to trust us. They are foundational foundational. and also meaningless. And also advisory to be consulted in case of emergency and then ignored. Okay, Mark, I'm I'm sorry the people at Twitter are mean to you. Um, um, Do you like how I turn this into a story about myself instead of a justice? No, no, that was Who's the real victim here? No, well, that is a very (laughs) Alito play, and I I respect uh, the game uh, and the player. Uh, Let's talk quickly about a, a kind of consequential and yet deeply confusing decision that did come down this week, Glacier Northwest versus the Teamsters. This was a case that I think we believed was going to be hugely consequential in terms of labor and organizing and the right to strike. It was 
very confusing, with the exception of brand new Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, the sole dissenter. Very confusing what the big picture takeaway of Glacier Northwest is going to be. Yeah, so this is a case about the federal right to organize your workplace through a union, which is protected by the National Labor Relations Act, which is enforced by the National Labor Relations Board. What's important to understand here is that this federal law generally preempts state-level suits against a union for helping to organize a workplace. And that is important because otherwise, employers could slap the union with civil suits that might be ruinous, even though this right to strike is theoretically protected by federal law. That would just destroy unions themselves if they were getting hit with all kinds of suits, maybe tort suits, liability for negligence, trespassing, whatever. So one of the fundamental precepts of this law, which was like a cornerstone of the New Deal, is we're going to treat unions like lawful enterprises that protect workers' vested rights. Before this point, In American history, unions were basically treated as conspiracies, as illicit conspiracies that were out to undermine law-abiding businesses, which obviously hindered their ability to exist. So the fundamental principle in this case is that the Supreme Court has said federal law kicks in and state law is ousted whenever unions are engaging in conduct that is arguably protected by federal law. Keyword is arguably. So it doesn't have to be certain. And that's an important buffer because the National Labor Relations Board has to step in and investigate whenever charges are filed and decide whether the charges are appropriate and then levy whatever fines and other penalties are necessary in that case. So that brings us to Glacier Northwest. These are truckers. These folks are good salt-of-the-earth truckers who uh, they have the big cements in the drums that turn and... They were organizing and trying to strike a deal, and they couldn't. And so they said, we're going to instead actually go on strike. And the truckers carrying the cement decided to go on strike after the cement had already been loaded into their trucks. Then they called a strike, you know, in conjunction with and facilitated and organized by the union itself. And so the employer gets very angry about this. Actually, the the trucks are fine. The trucks are not damaged. The union and employer... The cement is hardened. The cement is hardened, but outside of the trucks. Okay, so the cement is destroyed, but the trucks are, are okay. And the Supreme Court takes a look at this and says, how dare you? Truckers, how dare you allow that cement be loaded into your truck when you knew you were about to go on strike and you knew that there was a risk that the cement could be hardened and thus ruined? And so the majority by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, really almost never a good sign when she's writing the majority, says this was not protected um, because the employees did not take reasonable precautions to protect the employer's property. Instead, they let the cement be loaded onto their trucks, knowing there was a, a real risk that it could be ruined. Okay, that's the majority. We have Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito off in their own little candy land where they're saying, we hate this whole precedent. We think that it should basically be overturned. Uh, We're glad that the union lost this case, but we think the union should lose every case and that their conduct should be generally unprotected by federal law. Are you with me? I am with you. So that leads us to Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, 
who freaking rules. Okay, because from everything <laughs> I've said, you might kind of be nodding along and thinking like, yeah, like they loaded the cement, you know, it got it got it got ruined. Cement hardened. It got hard, so hardened. sad the hard hard cement. And Gatanji Brown Jackson busts in out of the gate. And she says two things that are really important. First of all, she says, well, of course this conduct is arguably protected, because guess what? The National Labor Relations Board's general counsel has already come in and accepted the unfair labor charge and started to investigate. So, like, the least that state courts can do is wait until the board has finished investigating, and if they think there's merit, we should not be second-guessing them at this early stage, which I think is, like, obviously correct, and that should have been the end of the case. But then she goes on and says... Well, that should have been the end. The court did not understand the assignment and instead addressed the actual conduct. So I'm going to go there. And she has this really incredible, like, pro-labor, pro-union kind of, like, prose poetry (laughs) where she says, hey, this is a concrete business, okay? This is a kind of risky operation. Selling perishable products can be risky. The whole deal is that sometimes they spoil, they go bad. But there have been cases involving like milk and cheese where the employees go on strike and they know the products will likely get ruined. They are ruined. It hurts the employer's bottom line. And the National Labor Relations Board has found that it's protected. Why? Because unions are allowed to hurt the employer's bottom line. Because the whole freaking point of striking is to hurt the employer's bottom line because that is what the strike is for, to show the employer why these workers matter so much. And so she says, and I mean, this is just like, I I think anyone reading this case should start with Justice Jackson's dissent because she is kind of the only one who has her head screwed on straight here. She says, it is ridiculous for the court to put the burden of protecting the employer's property and goods on the workers who are striking. That gets labor law exactly backwards. And then she says, workers are not indentured servants bound to continue laboring until any planned work stoppage would be as painless as possible for their master. They are employees whose collective and peaceful decision to withhold their labor is protected by the NLRA, even if economic injury results. I think that is obviously right. And I think it is really depressing that she was the lone voice on the court who was willing to say it. And Mark, quickly, the reason that both Justices Kagan and Sotomayor sign off on the broadest part of the Barrett majority is just because this isn't doing the kinds of huge consequential damage that it could have. Yeah, I think that's right. So this decision is bad. It's bad for this union. It's bad for unions broadly, but it's not as catastrophic as it could be. You know, the fear in this case is that a majority would overturn this principle that state courts have to step aside whenever the union's conduct is even arguably protected. And instead that uh, it would allow unions to get slapped with these suits, basically going back to like the pre-New Deal era where they're treated as conspiracies and they would be hobbled by endless civil suits in state court. And I think Sotomayor and Kagan obviously joined Barrett's decision because she didn't do that. She didn't go that far. She just kind of moved the goalposts a bit 
bad, like really bad, I think, but not as catastrophic as it could be. And tragically, that's the kind of calculation that you have to make if you are a liberal justice on this court. You know, I don't fault them, but I do think it says a lot about who Justice Jackson is as a jurist, that she was not willing to go along, that she said, no, I am going to be the one to speak truth in this case. And I think that is an incredibly valuable role to play, even when you are in a minority of three and you sometimes have to cast those those painful tactical votes. Mark, before we say goodbye, uh, there's a lot of cases still to come down in just a very few number of weeks, uh, some of them dating from really early, early, early in the term. Do you kind of continue to feel that the reason for this huge kind of clogged machine at the court is that there is still a level of weirdness and mistrust post Dobbs leak and just deep anxiety and awkwardness about trusting other justices with your draft opinions. I totally think that's part of it, undeniably. I think also these are huge contentious cases that are dividing the justices, you know, very uh, painfully and leading probably to a lot of slings and arrows being cast in all directions. And then I also think the justices are kind of lazy and they don't (laughs) want to go into the actual court and put their fancy clothes on and put their robes on and read these opinions from the bench. And they didn't have to do that for almost three years, right? They didn't have to do that during COVID. They just like, you know, uh, released the opinions online in 10 minute increments and that was it. Now they're back to reading them from the bench, but they've gotten out of practice. Several of them are new. And I think they just don't want to go in more than once a week. And so they're only so far scheduled to release these opinions on Thursday, which is when they are already in the building for their conference. So I really think like a part of this is there's this kind of like bottleneck because they're only going in on Thursdays. So they're only releasing opinions on Thursday when they have to schlep to the court anyway to do conference. And that means we're not getting like Monday and Wednesday opinion days, at least not yet. And so we're getting this weird bottleneck that's only going to be resolved when like, I guess over the next few Thursdays, there will be like eight opinions Each day, maybe they'll fill in a few more days toward the end because they have to. But for now, it looks like they are really trying to save themselves the burden of actually having to go to work. And honestly, in 2023, isn't that something that all of us can understand and relate to? The justices are lazy and the cement is hardening. (laughs) Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law for us here at Slate. He is... The only person holding my head through Opinion Palooza in ways that make uh, the next couple of weeks make sense. Mark, thank you so, so very much. I really look forward to hearing what the good people of Twitter think about your (laughs) justices are lazy comments today. Yes. Thanks. Thank you, Dahlia. That is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. One more thing, in case you missed it. Amicus is going weekly throughout the month of June, and we'll also be releasing bonus emergency episodes of the show throughout the session as decisions come down. This is part of Slate's Opinion Palooza series. We are working really hard to create a new kind of Supreme Court coverage, and we want you to join us. Subscribe to our newsletter at slate.com slash opinionpalooza slash newsletter. Please consider becoming a member. Our bonus episodes will be available to everybody for a limited time, but members never, ever miss a moment of amicus. <laughs>
Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our Senior Director of Operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next Saturday, maybe before if we get some of those big decisions. Either way, hang on in there. Thank you for listening. <laughs>